of John chapter 12. And if you're able, I would ask you to please stand as I read this portion of God's Word, being reminded that it has all of God's authority. It is inspired by Him, and so it is without any error, and it is for our good. So let's give it our full attention. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not used, not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is God's word. Let's pray. Now, O Lord, we ask your help so that we will not just hear your word as valuable as that is. Lord, we want more. We want your Holy Spirit to apply this word to us, to enliven us, um, to change us, and to make us more like Christ. So, Lord, we ask that you, by your grace, would do your good work in our hearts today so that more than anything else, we would be a people who treasure you above all things. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Chapter 12 of John's Gospel operates sort of as a, as a hinge point for the Gospel, because, because, because chapter 12 is sort of the opening of the door into that second half of John's Gospel, what we oftentimes call the, the Book of Glory. And it is here where Je- Jesus' public ministry of healing and preaching comes to an end, and what takes center stage now is his march towards the cross. And the rest of John's gospel account will encompass, then, just this final week of Jesus' life. And here, in the first 11 verses, the focus is on a dinner at the home of his friends in Bethany, the home of Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. And at the center of it is Mary's recognition of the infinite worth of Jesus. Now, I did a little research this week on the most valuable things in the world. And here's what I found. The most expensive necklace in the world is valued at over $56 million. It features a 637-carat white diamond suspended on a gold chain 
featuring 90 other diamonds. The most expensive home in the world is in Mumbai, India. It's valued at about $2 billion. Taxes on that are sky high, by the way. The most expensive car is a 1963 Ferrari 250 GTO, and it's valued at about $55 million. The most expensive painting, Salvatore Mundi by Leonardo. It was purchased just a few few years ago for over $450 million. Now, if you do an internet search on the most valuable things in the world, you'll see these things on the list. And what's interesting is that from day to day or from week to week, some of those shift around and new things are added and other things drop further down the list. And it's because value, so much value of things in the world really depend upon whatever people think it should be worth. Um, Value is a shifting thing. It's a changing thing. It has to do with whatever the market will bear, whatever people are willing to pay for it. But what about objective worth? What about those things that are immensely valuable because their worth is established by the truly objective, costly nature of their actual value? For instance, uh, the Hubble Space Telescope is worth over $2 billion because that's what it cost to make the thing. That's, that's actually what it costs. That, that is the sum total of the value of all of the research and all of its component parts and its, and its upkeep. That's what it costs. There's an objectiveness to the value of that thing. Well, it is in that sense that we talk about the worth of Jesus. His worth is not determined by market forces or by people's opinions or by the competitiveness of bidders at an auction. The worth of Jesus is determined by who he is, full stop. And his worth is infinite. Well, here we are as John opens chapter 12 Um, we see that immediately after the raising of Lazarus from the dead, Jesus had departed about 12 miles away from Jerusalem to a town called Ephraim. And the reason for that is because he was keeping low because the Jewish religious authorities had, in all essence, put a price out on his head. Well, now we find him right back at Bethany again, just over the Mount of Olives, just over that hill from Jerusalem. So once again now, he is within striking distance of those who want to do him harm. But he's there purposely because it is in that direction, towards Jerusalem, that he came. That's why he came. Ultimately, he did not come to avoid his enemies. Ultimately, he came to be put into the hands of his enemies. And so very purposefully, the hour now arriving very soon, he is right back at the foot, if you like, of his own enemies. And the occasion for this is that Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, are putting on a dinner in his honor. You can imagine the joyfulness of this celebration. Uh, Their brother is back, having been raised from the dead. And it may be significant, the fact that we're told here that it's just days, six days before Passover, it may be significant that the Jews were expected to select the lamb 
that they would bring as a sacrifice for Passover, they were expected to select that lamb one week before the beginning of Passover. And here Jesus is one week before the beginning of Passover, now right at the gates almost of Jerusalem, because he is the spotless lamb sacrificed to cover our sins. He is our wrath-bearing substitute. As we said last week, Passover is a person, the person of Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now he is prepared for his last and final Passover. The last time Passover will ever be necessary. He is, as we sing in one of the hymns we sing, the new and better Moses leading his people out of slavery. He is the heavenly manna and the water from the rock that sustains the lives of his people in this desert. So, verse 2, they give a dinner for him. Martha served, we're told, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. John does not want us to forget that something amazing has happened. One of the things we've said before is that Christianity depends upon actual historical events. Christianity is not an esoteric religion. Christianity depends on real people who really lived, on actual events that actually happened. And here we are. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. It would not have done for John to say, Now, Lazarus was with them in spirit. No. Lazarus was there, reclining at table, putting food into his mouth and his digestive system working it out. Because he was actually alive, he'd really been raised. John isn't writing a fanciful tale. He's reporting eyewitness testimony. And once again, we see the importance of this sort of testimony, this sort of evidence to the Christian faith. But in addition to the fact of this resurrected man sitting at the table with Jesus and with his family and friends is the deeper significance of the whole scene. What would have been a meal for those gathered to mourn a dead Lazarus was now a banquet celebrating his life. The dinner was held on a Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, the day before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where he would be hailed if just for a moment as king. And now, verse 3, we get to the heart of this passage. Do you see verse 3? Look at it again. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, the entire episode here orbits around Mary's act. And there's deep symbolism at work. Symbolism that Mary herself almost certainly doesn't really fully grasp. Now, let's talk about this pound of nard. If you were to go into a department store today and say, where do you keep your best nard? I imagine they would have a hard time knowing where to direct you. And can I just say that I miss cologne? I miss cologne. I remember when I was in high school in the 1980s? Cologne. Cologne was everywhere. Everywhere you went, there was cologne. And any respectable high school guy on the top of his dresser had six or seven bottles of cologne. Do you remember that, guys? 
Do you remember that? Of course, there was the ubiquitous green bottle of polo, yes? Dracar Noir, um, Halston. Um, what else? What else did we wear? English leather. Uh, yeah. Don't say Old Spice. That was your dad. Um, anyway. Let's face it. Um, and, and from what I remember, Old Spice came in like two-gallon jugs, something like that. Not the most expensive product to make. Um, well, at, at this time, fragrant oil, fragrant ointments were were used a lot, and again, part of it was out of necessity, because you didn't take a shower every single day, obviously, Um, but also for ceremonial purposes. You would anoint people, if you had the means, you would anoint people with fragrant oil as they came into your home. Kings, prophets, priests were anointed at the onset of their service. And here, what's described to be in Mary's possession is a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Now, nard is a word which means something similar to to ointment or oil. It's described as pure, and the word that John uses for pure um, is the same root word where we get our word for faith. So the the point being is that it implies genuineness. This is the real thing. This is not a smell-alike that you get at the outlet mall. Um, This was the real thing. It's genuine. It is what it's advertised to be. And its potency, the fact that once it was opened, it could be smelled throughout the entire house, its potency is due to the fact that it is the genuine article, that it is the good stuff. It's the expensive stuff. It's the stuff that's not in the average household, but only possessed by people with means. And so it would have been Mary's prized possession, almost certainly the most valuable possession that she had, and there was a pound of it. In verse 5, John mentions here that it's worth 300 denarii. Now, that's equivalent to the average yearly income at that time. Think about that for a moment. Perfume, fragrant oil that had the market value of a year's wages. So I did a little more homework this week. What's the most expensive cologne? Incidentally, it's not polo. Um, now, there are some kind of ultra, ultra boutique brands that only like five people in the world can afford. But in typical, uh, it, 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 you know, what you, what you would find typically in a department store, the most expensive cologne you can find is probably like Tom Ford, and it's like $450 for a bottle. And we look at that and go, no one needs to smell that good. Just no one needs to smell that good. I mean, wh- whatever... Whatever the distance is between how good Old Spice smells and how good Tom Ford smells, I guarantee it's not $420 worth of difference. Okay? Now, imagine a bottle of ointment that 
that would cost an average man his yearly income. This is meant, in other words, to shock us. This is meant for us to say, was that a foolish thing she just did? Isn't that excessive? Isn't that too much? This was her prized possession. One commentator puts it this way. This is therefore a ridiculously lavish amount of such fine perfume to be used all at once, and especially when applied to only one person. Again, in the ancient world, the act of anointing a person was meant to set them apart, set them apart for a particular role or a particular office, a king or a priest or a prophet. And it was meant to honor that recipient, usually in a public way. And usually the sort of anointing was applied to the head because the head was seen as the most honorable part of the body. But by anointing Jesus' feet, watch this, by anointing Jesus' feet, what Mary is probably doing is simultaneously honoring him, but also reflecting on her own knowledge that she is a servant of the king. There's There's a humility about her action that is quite moving. John tells us that Mary did now something almost as unusual, which she then begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Now, some of the onlookers may well have been scandalized by this intimate act, but John records it as something that is exemplary. It's not meant to be taken as inappropriate, as though Mary is crossing some sort of line of propriety. That is not what's happening here. In fact, there are examples from the ancient world of women lowering their hair precisely as an indication of gratitude and, in some cases, humility. One commentator writes this, quote, Thus, Mary was addressing Jesus not as man but as king, the one to whom the only appropriate posture was kneeling face down at his feet, using her own hair to express how much her whole person was in service to the king. That's good, isn't it? Her act was one of worship, and Jesus received it as such. I think of Isaac Watts' great hymn, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Mary, long before those words were ever written, is acting that out. Well, here we get introduced to Judas. We see him there in verses 4 and 5. Keep in mind that Jesus was never once fooled by Judas. Because we look at his presence there and say, oh, what a tragic thing. Well, It is tragic in terms of the fact that Judas was a skilled hypocrite and liar and a thief. That is a tragedy. But the selection of Judas by Jesus as one of the twelve was not an unforeseen tragedy. God acted sovereignly in choosing Judas to bring this man into close proximity 
so that he would be a means that God himself would use to bring about our salvation. So Judas, exercising his well-honed skills as a liar, as a hypocrite, he says, listen, that is wasteful. We should have taken that ointment, that perfume, sold it because we could get about 300 denarii for it. That's a year's salary. Think of all the poor people we could help. Now that's hard to argue with, isn't it? I mean, anybody here want to say, no, let's not do that? I mean, I mean, who's going to stand up and say, that's a bad idea, helping the poor? I mean, Judas knows what he's doing here. How do you, how do you argue with that? You know, the other guys were thinking, oh, I wish I'd said that first, right? But you know, for Judas, the value of the perfume was based upon its worth in the marketplace. For Mary, the value of the thing was measured by its use. And it being the most valuable thing in her possession, she saw, therefore, as fit for being used up entirely on that one who had become her greatest treasure. That she anointed Jesus' feet speaks further of her knowledge that even something so valuable was worthy only of the feet of Jesus. You see verse 6? John gives a little commentary here. John can't help venting just a little bit, spirit-inspired venting, mind you, but venting on the character of Lazarus. I'm sorry, of Judas. He didn't care anything about the poor. In fact, he's a liar, and he's a thief. What he wanted was was a year's salary placed in the treasury so that he could skim even more funds. That's the kind of man that Judas was. He loved money above all things. Money was his treasure, not Jesus, and so he would take money to betray Jesus. Now look there, verse 7 and 8. Jesus responds to Judas's objection. Because again, there has to be a response to that. You can't just leave the, we should have sold it and used that money to help the poor. You can't just leave that sitting there. So Jesus responds. He says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, now what Jesus says there, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, what's he saying exactly? Well, there's another way that those words can be rendered that I think makes it a little bit more clear what Jesus is saying. It can be rendered this way. It is intended, that is, that perfume, that valuable possession, it is intended to be kept for the day of my burial. In other words... In God's own providence, that object, that expensive perfume, had always been intended, kept, for this very moment. In Jesus' words, for his burial. Mary is applying it to the feet of her king. Jesus is receiving it as an anointing for his burial. You know, it's interesting because... Days before this, Mary had helped her sister Martha prepare the body of their dead brother Lazarus. And a part of that preparation would have been an anointing with fragrant oil. 
And now, unbeknownst to her, she is once again preparing a body for a tomb. The anointing of a king occurred at the beginning of his reign. And I want you to follow this, because I think this is the key in understanding Jesus' reference to his burial. He understood that his death was not the end of an era, but the unveiling of his true glory. That's why the Roman centurion could look at the crucified and dying Jesus and say, this surely is the Son of God. That's why one of the thieves being crucified next to Jesus could see this man writhing in the same sort of pain he was in and say, remember me when you enter your what? Kingdom. There were eyes that day at the cross that saw this humiliated, torn, bloodied body and said, the king, the king. And so both things are happening in this very moment. Is is Mary anointing a king or is she preparing a body for burial? The answer is both. Because the kingship of Jesus, for those with eyes to see, was so beautifully, profoundly, deeply unveiled as he became our sin-bearer. Now, look there at verse 8. The poor you will always have with me, Jesus says, or you will always have with you, but I'm only here for a short time. That, that statement himself, from, from Jesus is kind of a, it's both a veiled prediction of his coming death, I'm, I'm going to be with you only a short time, and it is also a justification of Mary's unmeasured devotion to him. She's chosen the best thing here, what she's done is right, because I'm only going to be here for a short time. And you know what, coming from anyone else, that would be inappropriate. You know, if I were to ever stand before you and say, I would like you to take what is most valuable to you and lay it at my feet. Don't, don't do that. At that time, it's, it's time to call in special forces, okay? You don't do that. You don't do that when I say that. But coming from the one who is God in the flesh, coming from the one who is the I am, the bread of life, the light of the world, the door for the sheep, the resurrection and the life, the I am, you most certainly do that for. Now Jesus' statement, the poor you will always have with you, has led some to believe that Jesus is advancing some sort of ambivalence towards the poor. Well, don't worry about the poor, they're always around, they're always hanging around. That's not what Jesus is saying. Nor is Jesus giving us warrant to not have genuine concern for the poor. Now, I think it's important that we make a distinction because the Bible makes this distinction between those who are impoverished because of their sin and those who are impoverished because of forces that are outside of their control. That that distinction is made in the Scriptures for good reasons. It's always been a biblical standard that there are consequences to sin. There are consequences to laziness and foolishness and wastefulness and materialism and spending more than you make. There are consequences to that. And it's not that you don't help those who are impoverished because of their own bad choices, but you should help them very wisely, strictly limiting the assistance they get with an eye towards their repentance 
so that the way that they interact with money and possessions will change, so that the decisions they make will become wise rather than foolish. That said, there are people who are impoverished because of factors that are well outside of their control. And throughout the scriptures, God demonstrates his compassion for the poor. In fact, if you go back and study Deuteronomy, so much of of what God encodes into the law for his people has with it a function for helping the poor. So for instance, if you're harvesting your fields, if you're a landowner and you're harvesting your fields, you leave a portion of your fields unharvested, and that is the grain that's left behind for the poor. That was, a, that was a law that they had to follow. That was a divinely given law. Our laws against usury, in other words, laws against lending people money and then charging them interest. Or laws that designed uh, the, uh, the, the space for jubilee years where debts were erased. Or the requirements to give alms for the poor. Or even the Sabbath laws, the laws governing the Sabbath. Part of that was to protect the poor from being taken advantage of and made to work seven days a week. Throughout Deuteronomy, throughout God's law, there are applications in order to make sure that the poor are properly cared for. And that concern for the poor then is carried forward into the ministry of Jesus, who came to lift up the poor, the outcast, the marginalized, the forgotten. And if if Judas is so concerned with the poor, then he can do something every single day to alleviate their suffering. What Jesus is doing in that statement is he's pointing a finger at Judas and saying, you're the keeper of the treasury. You've heard everything I've taught all of this time. There's not a single thing, Judas, keeping you from helping the poor every single day of the week. And now you mention it? He's exposing, he's uncovering Judas's hypocrisy right there on the spot. And Jesus is also helping us to see there that lavishing appropriate praise upon him is never at odds with helping the poor. In fact, if we know anything about Jesus and what it means to be fully devoted to him, then it will move us to have a heart of similar compassion that Jesus has. You cannot rightly follow Jesus and rightly treasure Jesus and despise the poor. Let's struggle through that, folks, okay? Devotion to Jesus will carry with it necessarily a concern for the poor, the marginalized, and the weak. It will. And worshiping Jesus and loving our neighbor and caring for the impoverished, those are harmonious attitudes. Don't ever separate them. Well, look there finally again at verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. Well, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And again, once again, points to the historicity of John's writing here. I mean, what's happening is exactly what you would expect to happen if a dead man was raised. The the people show up. If I'd raised a dead man and was feeding him at my house, some of you would show up. In fact, a lot of you would show up. You'd be crazy if you didn't show up, right? I'd be concerned about you if you preferred a football game to seeing the dead guy who was now alive in my living room. 
Well, this is what's happening here. A typical, worthy human response. Jesus is back. Let's go see him. Oh, and by the way, Lazarus is still alive. So they come. And you see the response? So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You can't have evidence of Jesus' lordship running around. So they were going to kill Lazarus. And again, it's a perfectly logical thing for them to do. I mean, it's wicked, but it has its logic, doesn't it? If we're going to kill Jesus then we need to kill the man who's a living testimony that Jesus is Lord. Now, we don't know if they ever succeeded in that plan or not, but we do get a glimpse into the radical fallenness of the human heart. And the same hardness of heart is especially tragic when it comes to Judas. Remember, Judas heard every sermon Jesus preached. Judas saw the harmony of Jesus' life, meaning he saw in his life the perfect obedience to God's law. He saw in his life the perfect compassion in his heart. He saw in his life the power that exuded from him. He saw it all. He witnessed it all. He was taught it all. And yet he remained in his sin. He remained a thief. He remained unchanged unbowed, unrepentant. No wonder. No wonder Jesus said that at the last day, at the day of judgment, when he comes to judge the living and the dead, there will be those who gather among him from amongst the multitudes who cry out to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we heal people in your name? Didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? And Jesus will say to them, Away from me, you workers of wickedness. I never knew you. It will be people who were around Jesus or around the church who maybe believed some of the right things, who did maybe some of the right things, but the problem was is that in their hearts they remained unrepentant and unbowed. So once again, we see Jesus met with both belief and rejection. He's responded to with both love and indifference. Joshua, I think of Joshua, who takes over the reins of leading the people into the promised land after Moses stays behind. And you remember that moment, it's described in Joshua 24, where Joshua stands before the people knowing full well how duplicitous they've been on and off throughout their journey. And he stands up to them and basically says, it is time to fish or cut bait. And he says this, choose this day. Either you need to serve the living God or the gods that are beyond the river, the pagan gods, the gods of the the Canaanites. But make your choice. There's not going to be any middle road here. We're not going to go forward until we get the people to say it is to God Almighty that we owe our allegiance. If that's where you are, then let's go. Otherwise, if you're not on board, then go serve the gods of the pagans and see how that works out. Or the prophet Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 18, he said to the people of Israel, Stop limping between two different options. 
and either follow the Lord or follow Baal. Jesus called for the same sort of decisive choice. In teaching about the idolatrous temptations of money and materialism, uh, Jesus said, a man cannot serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and be devoted to the other, or, or he'll love the one and despise the other. But you can't serve two masters. The worshipful devotion of Mary was in stark contrast to the schemes of Judas and to the enemies of Jesus, but also in distinction to those who tried to find a middle ground, a middle way. Well, we like Jesus. We think it's awesome when he raises people from the dead. Now, we're not going to worship him. We're not going to get carried away with it, though. We'll be here for the awesome stuff, but otherwise be sensible, moderate people the rest of the time. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. He will not be treated as a kindly but uncommanding religious ornament in our lives. Either we will despise him or we will worship him. And if you think you've found a middle way, you haven't. One commentator observes that the world has never had a problem with religion so long as it's in moderation. Now, it doesn't it doesn't mind too much wealth or too much power or too much sex or too much influence, but it does have a problem with too much religion. Pick your religion so long as you're not really into it. Believe in Jesus if you must. Consider him as your own personal God, but don't think for a moment that I'm accountable to him. You can come home from school more serious about Christianity because you got really involved in that great church, but but don't make Jesus your all-consuming passion. Keep it in balance. You know, it's interesting that the one person in this story who is depicted as truly understanding reality is Mary with her disheveled, oily hair. She's the one with all of her over-the-top actions that's actually portrayed as the one who gets it. You cannot love Jesus too much. You cannot follow him too closely. You cannot adore him too devotedly. Now, my fellow Christians, you believe, you know you believe, You know what you believe and you know in whom you believe. That is good. But believing is not the only factor in the Christian's life. Faith is what introduces us to Christ's call to follow him so that our believing in him, which is essential, also makes us disciples of his. Believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. And following Jesus is a narrow way. We probably don't rehearse Jesus' words enough there. But it's a narrow way. We can't take everything with us if we follow Jesus. Not everything fits through the turnstiles of discipleship. So we grip our treasures loosely. I remember one time, I was at an airport with some other pastors from our church. It wasn't this church. (laughs) Right? Uh, no, it really wasn't. It wasn't. But we got into it, and this was, this was probably, 
This would have been just maybe four years after 9-11. And one of our pastors who, who makes the most forgetful person you know look like they have photographic memory. I just want you to know that. I, I love him, but that's who he was. And he showed up with his backpack, and his backpack had several items that he could not take into the airport with him, or he could not take on the plane. And several of these were pricey items, things that had cost him a lot. And he literally, we didn't have time for him to go to the post office and do that stuff. He literally had to throw a few of these things away because he could not take them with him. And you could see the pain on his face. I stood next to him as he put a couple of things in the trash can that weren't easy for him to lose. But, you know, I was given a picture there in that moment of, you know, we have to do that sometimes when we follow Jesus. There are things that, there are things that don't go through the narrow way. So we need to grip our treasure loosely. Think of what you value the most. And you'll probably come up with a decent list. You'll think about people, of course. You'll think about certain possessions. You'll think about less tangible things like accomplishments and commendations, about skills and talents. You'll think about hobbies. You'll think about time. You'll think about various experiences, these things that are of great value to you. You'll think about honorable, good things, but you'll also think about shameful things perhaps too, sins that you aren't ready or willing yet to let go of. You'll think of good things that you handle in a good way. And you'll think of good things which have become idols to you. And what I'm saying is let's, if you can in your mind, let's gather all of that up. Don't drop anything. Take, take it all with you. Acknowledge the accumulated worth of what you have there. And let's break it all open and pour it out at the feet of Jesus. And in doing so, let us acknowledge that however great the pleasure of sin is, Jesus is better by far. Jesus' worth is such that walking away from sin is no sacrifice. And while Jesus tells us that if we're to follow him, we have to count the cost, we have to take up our cross every day and follow him. That is, that is sacrificial language, if you like. But when it comes right down to it, given the options before us, following Jesus is not a sacrifice. I've never lost a thing, including my pride. I've never lost a thing that was more valuable than Jesus. I've never been deprived of something that was of greater worth than Jesus. And don't just think about sin. Think about the good things. The honorable things that we do well in loving. And let's lay it all at the feet of Jesus. And in doing so, recognize that even among the good things, among the choice blessings, Jesus is even greater. And you know, I don't, I don't learn that 
until I lose something. I've said this to you before. I've referred to her quote before, Corey Tin Boom, who says, I've learned in this life to grip these treasures lightly because it hurts when the Lord pries them from my fingers. But she would also give testimony of the fact that she never lost anything that was of greater value than the Lord. And that's why we sing, Fairest Lord Jesus, Ruler of all nature, O Thou of God and man the Son, Thee will I cherish, Thee will I honor, Thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations, Son of God and Son of man, glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore, be thine. Let our lives be a living testimony to that. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Now, our Father and our God, help us that we would see the infinite worth of Jesus and we would prize him above our sin. That, Lord, we would prize you even above the good, good gifts you give us. And where there is loss, Oh God, guard our hearts and help us to see that you have a purpose in it all. Some of it we can't know now and won't know now. But in every loss, Lord, I think maybe there's an invitation for us to consider your worth, to consider your true value. And help us to do that. Lord, if it's the loss of a person, a loss of a blessing, a loss of of a particular source of comfort. Lord, let us remember that even in our dismay and confusion and our questions, that we would learn this thing, that you are better by far. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.